Well, it's great to be here. The, uh, what do you mean Brady's quirky? <laughs> You're not saying there's any, it sounds like we're related somehow. I recognize that quirkiness. I'm just going to grab this. But it sounds like your pastor and I have some similar experiences in the past. Because I, when he said, well, that was the worst sermon I've ever preached, I said, yeah, I recognize that. I've had that experience too. But the, uh, the thank you too for the privilege of being able to be here with all of you. Can you hear this well? Is it better if it's like that? Ah, yeah. Like that? How's that? Great. The um, uh, I've just come from visiting my daughter in uh, New Zealand, and it was interesting that, uh, that you were talking about IHOP, and uh, it's fascinating, of course, to see. Uh, for me, it's a great privilege here to see what God is doing here. Uh, it's so thrilling to see what God is doing around the world. Um, uh, when I see these international churches, I think of uh, because we have family relations in Austria that I'm often in Vienna, and there's an international church there. And then I come here, and then I see an international church here, and I think, well, God is doing so many things around the world. And I was just in New Zealand, and my daughter there is on staff of, it's called TIHOP, uh, which is the New Zealand version of the House of Prayer. And uh, one of the things that's going on there, they just had a call to all, which is a kind of call into missions, and uh, the um, House of Prayer was involved in that. And uh, the vision that one of the visions that they have in, in uh, New Zealand is that the House of Prayer they're working together um, with a kind of a missions thrust, and they're looking uh, uh, doing some partnership with YWAM, and at the same time working with Bill Johnson. So I was hearing so many of these uh, similar names. I'm going, oh well, I've just come from New Zealand, and I'm hearing these names. So you see, you know, the the, the Spirit of God uh, working um, all over the world, and. Um, I want to. I want to talk. Uh, I want to have a kind of a look at, at Luke. Uh, but before I do, one of the people that I, I talked to while I was in um, New Zealand uh, was one of the YWAM directors, uh, a uh, fellow called John Dawson. And John does reconciliation work all over the uh, all over the world. And um, one of the things he, he he does is is he as as people are struggling with identity issues, Christians. And interestingly enough, I think anybody in uh, sort of an international fellowship, that's an issue in people's lives, is what is my identity? And when I look at Jesus, Jesus was totally Jewish in his uh, orientation. He was in Israel. That was his ministry. He didn't go outside. He said, I don't, I don't even want you to minister to the Jews. And then on the other hand, you have somebody like Paul the Apostle. And Paul the Apostle, he was kind of kicked out from his Jewishness. And he ministered beyond uh, the, the realms of, of Israel. And when you have an international, that type of, the, the more Paul the Apostle uh, kind of ministry, one of the issues I think that comes up as a challenge is the issue of what is my identity? I mean, it's much simpler if you're just an American residing in America, if you're just a Korean residing in, in Korea. But what do you do if you have kind of multiple identity issues? And um, the first thing that John said to me, and I thought was very interesting, he said, well, what I always say to people who are dealing with these issues is don't forget 
You have a problem of riches. You have a problem of riches when you have multiple involvements, uh, more international, not just a, a kind of a national identity. It is a challenge, but actually it's a problem. It's, 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 not a, it's a sort of an issue that I've got too many things here to deal with rather than not enough. It's not that, and if you look at it as something that God is adding into your lives, uh, that's the first kind of, I think, way that we can deal in a healthy way with what's our identity. But I also want, as we look at Luke, there's, there's just two simple words that I want to pull out of Luke. And I think one of them, to me, is something that's very important in our identity. It's the word you, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The other is the word Holy Spirit, and I think that it seems that you're very familiar here with the term the Holy Spirit. Um, also, just before I, uh, we have a look at Luke, I also want to just say amen about the pulling out the ordinary in people. I also very much liked your, your uh, emphasis on not just looking at celebrity uh, preachers, but what is it that God has in the ordinary? Because to me, that's one of the real themes in the entire book of Luke. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, well, before I go there, um, uh, so just this story and I can't remember if it was in my evangelism book or not there was a, there was a man I remember who was converted when I was in, in Afghanistan way back in the early 70's uh, a fellow from Yorkshire called Jeff Walvin now Jeff was the most unlikely unlikeliest of, of uh, potential powerhouses for God he was a very quiet Yorkshireman uh, he was uh, quite sick at the time because he had gone to India and he was very involved in Eastern religions. And so he thought, um, oh, I'll just have drink some of that nice Ganges water, you know, where they bury all the corpses and everything flows in there. And, uh, he, of course, he got very, very sick. And eventually he came to us in, in Kabul, Afghanistan, and eventually he became a Christian. But G Jeff was a very, very quiet sort of retiring. He wasn't a personality. He wasn't a person that you would, so your eyes were drawn to and say, no, here's going to be somebody who's going to do something for God. And I remember Jeff got, in those days we weren't very Pentecostal or charismatic, and he got involved with this kind of crazy Texan uh, who would go into India and do these healing ministries. And so he got this kind of bug in his ear, oh, you know, the Holy Spirit. And uh, he went off to India, and I remember getting his, uh, he went uh, uh, and then to Nepal. And work, he was working, we used to work with the freaks and hippies. And he said, no, you know, um, uh, I'm gonna, I, I think I, the Lord's leading me to, to work with the local, uh, the, the Sherpa, who coming out of the hills. And so he started to kind of have these meetings, and I started then getting his letters. And he said, and I'd never heard of this kind of stuff until then. He said, he said we were praying, and there's just about ten of us in this little room. And these are all these uh, Buddhist the Sherpa guides, you know, who are just coming out of the caravans. And he said, the power of God just came in the, in the room and two of these Sherpa guys just fell on the, on the floor under the power of God. I'm going, what, what does this mean? I had never heard of this before. I thought, and this is Jeff? Jeff Walvin? Quiet Jeff? And then he said, and then a few months later, uh, I got a, one of his newsletters and he has now traveled down into uh, Bihar, in Patna and Bihar. And Patna, Bihar is the poorest state in India and Patna is, is uh, one of its chief uh, cities. And he said, we rented out a stadium there, and 12,000 people came, and hundreds of people, of the, the, the Hindus in that area, uh, came forward for healing. This is back in the 70s. And I went, this is Jeff Walton? <laughs> Quiet little Jeff? 
So when you talk about God pulling out uh, of the ordinary, the extraordinary, um, I want to amen that. That is, that really is the ways of God. And I think as we look at the book of Luke, um, uh, to me that is what, what, what marks Luke. I was, I, was, uh, I was looking at a passage and I was sharing it uh, somewhere else and I was saying, you know, I want to, uh, with my children, we spent about six months when they were growing up, uh, uh, five days a week we went through, we called it a Luke at Luke, you know. And we got through about seven chapters in six months, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, and so I was saying, I don't know, I just love uh, Luke. And they, 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 here comes Dad again. Luke, Luke at Luke. Oh, that's cute, Dad. That's really good, you know. And uh, so, and then I was sharing at this meeting. I said, I love Luke. And this, this young man came up to me and he said, so why do you love Luke? Oh, well, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I just love it, you know. And I thought about it. And I think, uh, I think I, I know a little bit better now why I like Luke. And if you look at all the apostles, all the apostles are, are individuals, they're personalities. God uses people, and the apostles were, were people. It may be a revelation to you, but that was the case. And if you look at each book, you look at John, very mystical. You know, he, it's all about my personal inner relationship. He'd be a good tea hop kind of man, you know, I'm just basking in the beloved, and I love Jesus, and so cool, you know, and I'm not an activist, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And then if you look at Mark, you know, especially those first few books, it's all immediately, 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 and then, you know, it's kind of, you know, maybe he's more Korean, the activist, you know, and, uh, <laughs> I hear the, the, the Koreans are a little bit hyper. You know, bless you, bless you. But, you know, and uh, as a matter of fact, I was just talking to, he was one of the, the, the YWAM leaders in Asia, and he came back to New Zealand. He's a New Zealander, you know. And he said, oh, he said, you know, I get back to, to New Zealand, and it's the word is chill, just chill, you know. And uh, whereas, in, whereas I was in Asia, it was go, 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 go. You know, and I said, well, that, wait a minute, hold it, stop. You know, you're breaking all my stereotypes. I, t- I was told that, you know, the Asian is relationship, you know, and just, uh, you know, not decisions. You know, no, 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 not in the urban centers. That's not Asia, you know. It's go, 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 you know. And, uh, okay, so there's Mark. You know, it's all immediately. Well, I'm, I'm kind of more of a chill guy, you know. I, I, go, 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 go. So uh, I, Mark is good, but it's very, it's uh, cryptic. It's all just, everything is concertina together. It's just the, I want to give you the essence of the story. And uh, Matthew, it's, Matthew's good. I like Matthew. I have nothing against Matthew. But it's, uh, you know, it's gobs of teaching. Gobs of these teaching sections, you know. But when I look at Luke, it's about ordinary people in ordinary places, in ordinary times, where God does extraordinary things. And when I look at Luke, he really brings out the people side of what's going on here. And you, you even see it in the very way that Luke starts. You know, the stories that aren't covered. You look at the, um, you know, the, the father and mother of John the Baptist. And he goes all through this kind of detailed... And you, get, you, you go, I relate to these people. I'm not one of these great, you know... Uh, people, I mean, I'm still, you know, I think of the, the book I wrote, The Reluctant Evangelist, because that's kind of me, just, oh, you know, well, Lord, you know, I, I'm just here, you know. And God breaks into our lives, doesn't He? And that's what Luke brings out. Here's Zacharias, you know. And, and you think how ordinary it is. 
And if it, as a matter of fact, the way, very way it's, it's structured and set up about the ordinary times, you know, as their custom was. Okay, here I've been doing this for decades, not years, not months, not weeks, decades, Zacharias had been doing this, going into the temple, just doing his duty, faithfully. Oh, and it seemed so accidental. You know, the roll of the die. Oh, well, well it's your turn. You're going to, oh, okay. Is God really in these ordinary situations, in these ordinary times? Can He really break in in our ordinary lives and do something, something extraordinary? Here's Zacharias. I've been doing this. And you know, frankly, this has not been all that rewarding. Because you remember what his wife said? God has now taken away my shame. Here was a person who lived for decades with shame because she didn't have a baby. But he still went and did his duty. He still went and praised the Lord. He still went forward. And it was in that ordinary time, all of a sudden, when he didn't, didn't expect it, God broke in and said, I have a word for you. I'm going to do something. Well, I don't think so. Okay, you know, mute button. And then, you know, the rest of the story. It was the same with Mary. Another ordinary time. An ordinary person. Not the great you know, again, Luke brings this out. He says with, uh, with uh, Zacharias in the time of Herod, such and such and such. Notice that the, the great things are not going on with Herod. You would think, okay, here's the kings, here's the newspapers, here's the headlines. But it wasn't in the headlines. It was on the, you know, the C-section of the paper, page 13. Well, that, well, no, it's not on page 1. And the same thing with uh, John the Baptist and Jesus. In the t when he went in the time of Caesar Augustus, then came the census. And you think, oh, where, where is it happening? Where is the greatness happening? Caesar Augustus. Oh, yeah, I've heard of Caesar Augustus. He must be important. That must be where it's at. No. Herod and Caesar Augustus, the great, were just backdrops for what God was doing. It was in the ordinary. And Luke brings us out. It's not... In Rome, it's not in Caesar, it's not in the capital with Herod. It's in these little villages with these ordinary people. Here God is acting. Why do you and I have hope that God can do something significant? Why is it that we have the audacity as hope, as somebody said, that um, we can do something, whether it's in Myanmar, whether it's in India, whether it's here, ordinary people, just a bunch of ordinaries. Why? Because this is the way God works, isn't it? He is the God of the extraordinary, but He delights in using the ordinary. And this is why I love Luke. Ordinary people in ordinary times, in ordinary places. Oh, yes, it's just ordinary. No, that's one half of Luke. One half of Luke is bringing out, drawing out, showing us, reminding us of the ordinary. Why? Because that's where we are. That's where we are. But the other half is saying, now, this is, I'm just building the stage. This is just the backdrop. This is just the setting. Now, the real story is the extraordinary coming into that ordinary. And Luke brings that out, and that's, I think, why I like it, because it's so people-oriented. So uh, I can relate to that. And I think we can uh, as well. The, uh, so you look here, and I, let's have a, in Luke, better read some Luke after, you know, speaking of Luke, I better read something, better honor him in that way. And in Luke 1, now let's do Luke 1, verse 26. This is with Mary. 
In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Here again, you see the ordinary breaking here. The ordinary is Mary, she's a child, okay, da-da-da. This happens a million times. So-and-so is marrying so-and-so. And, you know, this is all very ordinary. This happens, nothing extraordinary there. And then God breaks in and speaks to her. And you see that uh, her reaction in verse 29 there is she's troubled. Now, we, of course, we've read this story so many times, it's, it's not a big deal. It's, but if you think of her, why was she troubled? Um, I think for one of the things is, uh, is the word, and this is what I want to bring out, the word you. God is speaking to her. You who are highly favored. You're going, well, me? Who am I? He has a real sense of her ordinariness. What are you, what are you talking about? And this is why this is a, a, a quite a simple message. Because the word you, God speaks to us and says you. Now, we as, as good Bible believers, we know this, we accept this, but it's actually quite an extraordinary fact, isn't it? That God takes particular notice, not just the mass of humanity, but of you. And this troubled Mary. This was not something that was, you know, typical of God speaking, of course, God loves all of us and he has a plan for our life. But she was troubled as the, as the impact of that hit her. God's individual care. That's why for me, when I, you know, as we all do, we read different magazines and I read critiques of evangelicalism. Now, on one hand, it's a valid critique. The critique is, you are too individualistic. On one hand, it's a valid critique. There is the whole communal church body orientation. But in my gut, fundamentally, I want to defend that individual notion that God has an individual calling and attention on each of our lives. And yes, it's important to emphasize the communal responsibilities and the communal identity. 
But I would say never at the expense of the fact that God loves and challenges us as individuals. And sometimes says, I don't care what the others are doing. This is what I'm saying to you. And we must never lose that sense of you, the eunus of the address of God. And this is what troubled Mary. It was, she said, what? You mean you actually are saying something to me? She wasn't troubled just by the big things, yes, but it started with she was troubled by God is speaking to me. But I'm just, I'm just a, you know, 16, 15 year old girl in Galilee, in a backward country, in a backward part uh, of this nation. And she was troubled by it, and people are troubled by it today. And one of the things I see, I, I, I um, I'm, I'm doing this degree, and I, I am exposed to things that disturb me as well as things that bless me, as I, hopefully, understanding grows of the scriptures and what God is doing. And one, this one uh, uh, missiologist, South African missiologist, who's trying to deal with how do we as evangelicals deal with the the ecological disaster? How do we? Is some of it? And he's grappling with this issue. Is some of it because we are too individualistic? And I think he goes overboard the other way. And, and listen, this is what he says. This is a quote from his book. He's talking about the African independent churches, and he's talking about one stream of them. And he says, uh, they have a Garden of Eden theology where Adam and Eve do not figure as the crown of creation. They are not seen as rulers over nature, but as the equals of animals. Human beings were created for the purpose of caring for all creation. The trees are addressed in their ceremonies as brother and sisters during their tree planting ceremonies. The kingdom of God is portrayed as starting with the Garden of Eden, in which trees and animals are all God's children. Then come humans who happen also to be God's children. Now, I think that the way to, to, to deal with ecological uh, missteps that, that we as Christians uh, could well be involved in is to, is to lift up our stewardship responsibility. I do not think it is by lowering the fact that man was created as the crown of creation, to rule over nature. It's not to take away from that individual and just kind of uh, individual stature of man and meld him in as just one amongst many animals, cells, and we shouldn't exalt ourselves. I think, in fact, Mary was troubled because God was exalting her. You. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to a rock. I'm not talking to a tree. I'm not giving a call to the mountains to rule over uh, this and that. I'm not calling them into their destiny. I'm calling you into your destiny. He's raising her up. And I think that's the ways of God to us. He says to us, you. And you know, it's wonderful that we can say to God, you. You. But it only, we are only able to do that we can, we, because God first allows us and speaks to us as you. It's what he has done in us first that we then respond to God and can say, Abba, Father. I remember as a, vividly to this day as a, as a non-Christian in 1970, you know, wandering around the woods of, of, of Santa Cruz in California, you know, uh, uh, typical California type of, you know, confusion, you know. And so I was, I, I lived out in the woods in a sleeping bag for nine months. You know, I lived under a tree, you know, and, uh, 
And so I used to work in this organic garden. I mean, I was doing it all right. You know, the organic garden, garden, and all this stuff. And then I remember I was, I, but I was inside. I knew I was completely looking for something. I didn't even know what it was. And I remember one day for three hours wandering around these pastures going, God, God, if you were there, if there is a God, please, where are you? Who are you? Are you? The confusion in my mind. And when I contrast that with nine, ten months later, being in India, when the Holy Spirit of God broke into my life as tears just came down, it's because God said, God broke through my ignorance, my darkness, that wall, and said to me, you. There was that touch of God. There was a connection. All of a sudden, I knew my place in the universe. Because I wasn't just a cell. Because God said to me and God says to us, you. That's where it starts. That's where our Christian lives start. And this is what troubled Mary because it was so, you're kidding me. You're speaking to me and I have a call? This is where it starts. And I think that's where, to me, that's where the foundation of these identity issues are also are overcome. Who am I? The first thing is because I am rooted in God. And no matter where, and how that works out in terms of how I relate to nationalities and my place in the world and just, you know, where do I belong exactly? That's process that works out. But fundamentally, it starts with an identity because God has said to me, you. I am at home in the universe. Now I can work out just exactly where I belong socially, ethnically, class. How does that all play in? But fundamentally, I'm at home in the universe. And that's where grappling with these identity issues can begin to be resolved. Now, God has a funny way of calming us, doesn't he? It's sort of counterintuitive. God's sometimes not very intuitive. It's counter, at least counter-human intuitive. And what do I mean? I mean, look how Mary is troubled. And look how God calms her down. In verse 30, Mary, uh, verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Ah, okay, good. This is going to be good. He's going to speak soothing words. Everything's going to be sorted out. I'm going to understand. It's going to become crystal clear. I'll see it all. No more problems. Excellent, excellent. Come to the right counselor. It's clear. You know, uh, and he says, "Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child. Uh, sorry, what? You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus." Whoa, whoa, wait! We got, we, aren't we moving way ahead of ourselves? Uh, I've already got the son. There's a few things we got to go through first, isn't there? What's this about the name of my son? But he hasn't stopped there. He's got to pile it on. You know, he will be great. Huh? I'm still I'm still struggling with the fact you said you to me. Now you're talking about my son who, sorry, and he's going to be great. Oh, sh- be quiet, Mary. I haven't quite finished yet. Thank you. You know, and he'll be called the son of the most high. This is a good way to calm her down. And oh, don't worry, you know, but he hasn't finished. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. Oh, that's oh, no, no, I haven't finished forever. And his kingdom will never end. Now, isn't it kind of... If you're trying to calm somebody down, and you know, you'd go straight to an answer. But not God. He just pours it on, pours it on. It's part of this, God does extraordinary things through the ordinary. 
And you see how, 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 how insistent he is in making this point. He, he says, okay, we'll deal with all your confusion later. But what, one thing I want you to uh, be clear on, the great things that I can and want to do through you. Now, don't misunderstand me because I, I can see that your, your, your pastor has already insulted you women by... So what, was that, what was that analogy? Healthy as a what? I could see that he was moving in the Holy Spirit, though, because he has that same anointing of this, uh, soothing and tr- calming, troubling oil by stirring up even more. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you see it here, so I guess you're moving in the right direction there. But if I could just sort of add insult to injury by saying, look at how... Can I just use this word? My, my wife is quite a, you know, a feisty one, so uh, I might get in trouble with this uh, later. But uh, uh, just like a woman, what does she get hung up on? What does she get hung up on? Uh, not, did you say forever and ever and ever? She gets hung up on, on the domestic issues. How will this be since I'm a virgin? <laughs> you go, wait a minute. He goes, focus is right there. You know, that's what she wants to know. She doesn't want to know. That, she doesn't say, that was really interesting. Did you say forever and ever and ever? How long is that? And how, how does that, you know, none of that. What do you mean? I, I, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I mean, this is, you know. All right, so, you know, this is what I mean. Ordinary people, ordinary times, God doing extraordinary things uh, through these very ones. Then, um, then God says to her, uh, here's the answer, and this is the second uh, uh, word, is the word Holy Spirit. One point that I want to bring out here is God saying you to us. Ordinary us. The extraordinary fact that God addresses us individually. That's one point. And I think that that's uh, something that's so important in in our ministry and obviously so important to our identity and who we are as we move forward. The second point is the word, the phrase, Holy Spirit. When she asks the question, how will this be? The answer is all wrapped up in the Holy Spirit. Verses 35 through 38. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One who will be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, even Elizabeth, your relative. Now, here's the subtlety of God. You see, on one hand, God says he, He's unrelenting. He doesn't make it easy for her. Uh, he says, and she responds, as we know, by saying, How will this be? And then he says, it will be through the Holy Spirit. And he only gives a little hint to kind of help her. In other words, he challenges her faith, but he gives her a little hint. Okay, I'm going to assure you, and I'm going to let you have a little bit of concrete, common sense confirmation. So you can see that this isn't just pipe dream. But the focus is on the greatness of the promise. But he gives her a little something. But it's very subtly done because he just kind of drops it in almost as an afterthought. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child. You know, oh, she go, oh, I can check this out then. Okay, I'll see if I'm just hearing crazy things because now there's an objective fact. And we know that she actually responds to that objective fact, that little kind of hint, that little assurance that God is, is grabbing her. Why? Because look, look at the word hurried in verse 30. Nine, isn't it? Yeah. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town. Now, why did she hurry? She was going, I'm going to check this out. I want to see. He said, Elizabeth. He gave me a, as they say, he's throwing me a bone. 
You know, and I'm going to go check. She, she goes down. And now at this time, look at the faithfulness of God. She's responded to the hugeness of the challenge. She hasn't said, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to believe this. She's not like Zechariah's who said, yeah, I don't think so. She's, she just says, okay, let it be to me as your word says. She's ready. But notice she doesn't just say, oh, I don't need any objective confirmation. She takes that, that little something that God gives her and she hurries there because she is interested. She wants to know. Now, at this point, God really pours it oil. God makes it so clear to her. He's so confirmed supernaturally by showing objective things that could not have been known in the natural. So as she's responding, said yes, and said, but it would really be nice, you know, if I could have some a bit more objective confirmation. And she responds to the hint that God gives her. She hurries down there. And as you know, the baby leaps in the womb. This amazing prophecy comes out. And look at the wisdom that God, it's not only the objective confirmation, but look at the wisdom that God gives to Elizabeth. I just noticed, I think for the first time, I've been looking at Luke, you know, for, for years. But it, I was looking at this um, verse 43. But why, now this is an untheologically trained woman, right? And look at what she says here in verse 43. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Have you heard that phrase somewhere else in the New Testament? The mother of my Lord? Why? Throne is a question. Because if you look in, uh, this is what struck me. If you look in, you don't go there, just you can jot it down. You can look in Luke 20, uh, uh, verse 44. And one of the questions that Jesus used to stump the Pharisees was he, is this a quote from the Psalms where Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, okay, if you're so smart then, how can David, who is the, uh, the ancestor, how can he call his son Lord when he's the father? And they can't answer because they're stumped by it. They don't understand. They don't know through all the study of the scriptures. And you, Jesus uses that to stump the Pharisees. And here is Elizabeth. She's just saying it right out. No problem. Because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom that the Holy Spirit has given her. Where would we be, we be without the Holy Spirit? That's the second simple point. Number one, the fact that God says to us, you, and the amazing fact that God has an attention and, and, and uh, a personal relationship with us. The second fact that we all know, where would we be without the Holy Spirit? Look at what the Holy Spirit's creating here. And I'll just, uh, I have several stories, but I'm not going to, I don't want to take too long here. So I'm just going to share a, a couple. But, um, hey, what, what, that's, 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 that's like a cynical laugh. Does that mean to your pastor? Is he one of those people who says, and, and in, in conclusion, and in conclusion, and in conclusion, 20 minutes later, and in final conclusion. <laughs> is that what I'm, am I hearing something of that? <laughs> anyway, but the, uh. Like your outreach. Where, what, you know, if the Holy Spirit didn't show up, what would the outreach be, be like? And the Holy Spirit does so many different things. I, I have some friends that uh, years ago, uh, some friends of mine. In fact, he was an ex, he is, uh, he was an ex baseball player, 20 years old. Uh, when we were in Amsterdam in 1975, uh, he was traveling through Europe because he was trying to get over his crushing disappointment. For years he had trained to be a uh, professional baseball player. 
He was drafted. Uh, he was on the verge of going into the major leagues, and he got an eye injury that ended his career at the age of 20. Everything finished. So he went through Amsterdam, and we had a houseboat there, more of these hippies and freaks, you know. And, uh, and he came, and he got saved at that ministry, you know. He went back to the United States, became a Presbyterian minister. He began very concerned uh, for the country of Turkey, 60 million Muslims, uh, a, a tiny church. Uh, and uh, this is, of course, common knowledge in Korea. When you go to, to, to uh, Ephesus, one of the common sites there is to see Korean uh, praying groups going through Islam, uh, Islamic Turkey, praying for Turkey. But uh, this guy called Andy started... Because of his concern uh, uh, for Turkey, he started something called the International Turkey Network. And they began going in regularly, taking teams in, organizing international conferences for Turkey. At one of those uh, conferences, a young man showed up, a guy called uh, uh, Ryan. And uh, he got a vision for Turkey. As a teenager, he spent a year in Turkey at a high school. Uh, then he went back. He said, I, have a, I'm, I want to do something. He went back. He went through Biola University. got his education there. Went on to Yale. Got a degree uh, at Yale. Then went, and now he's studying. Uh, and he was taking his PhD in the philosophy of religions in Turkey. So he has Islamic uh, teachers. Uh, so that's one, that's, that's another part of the puzzle. Good answer. We always need one like this at the front. No, no, no. He's probably kicked from behind. Say it, say it. It's time to say no. You know. So the then there's another guy called William uh, Craig. William Lane Craig converted as a young man. Decides to go and and get his philosophy degree. Uh, what does this do with the Holy Spirit? This looks all very kind of academic. But doesn't the Holy Spirit work in so many different ways? So you've got these three different, you've got the International Turkey Network inspiring this, this young teenager. And you've got a William Lane Craig, you know, who's uh, this philosophy. He doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't have a particular vision for Turkey. He's just uh, dealing with secularism. Uh, and then you have this young man who's now studying in Turkey. And so just uh, earlier, uh, late last year, I got an email from a friend in the International Turkey Network. And he said, pray for this event that's just coming up. Because the Holy Spirit is in this land where the devil is trying to kill what God has done. And have you noticed that? Uh, I have a little pet theory uh, that the devil will always try to strike back. Where God has had movement, life, and revival, the devil will try to strike back. And you look at the Bible Belt of the first century and what has happened to it. What was the Bible Belt of the first century? Israel and Turkey. What is the church like there? The, 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 the devil has tried to cripple the movement of God in those nations. And so these people, as people uh, who have a vision, they know that aggressive faith. They say, we will not allow what was God's to be killed out by the, by the attacks of, of the enemy. So one of the things that are, uh, uh, last year I, I got this email and from the International Turkey Network, 
And of course, they don't, they're not just outsiders. You've got to work with the, 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 the local believers. And so they have a very close relationship uh, with 25 of the top, uh, it's a very small church, of course, in, in, in Istanbul, but the independent uh, indigenous church is about 25 uh, leaders. They've organized in, in a national council, and they meet with the people from the International Turkey Network. And they said, one of the things that we need a lot of different things in Turkey, you know, leadership training, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but one of the things we want to do is sow an environment into the nation that will open up the door for more evangelism. And so they're talking about pre-evangelism and having people come to kind of set an environment for that. And so it's in that that this, uh, I got this wonderful letter uh, last year that's the type of thing where you say uh, this can only be explained uh, by the Holy Spirit. So uh, I got this email and it's from this guy, uh, this young man who's now doing his education in Turkey. Hi, Jason, he says. As you know, I have, studied start, um, I have started studying in the doctoral program in philosophy of religion at Ankara University. Many of my professors and colleagues, all of whom are Muslims, are fans of William Lane Craig's work. This is that Christian philosopher. Even my Islamic philosophy professor has a brand new copy of one of uh, Craig's more recent books, Philosophical Foundations of a Christian Worldview, on his desk. They are well aware that he is an evangelical Christian, but his academic work as a philosopher has transcended what might otherwise be a problematic barrier. Many of my professors share a common cause with Dr. Craig on many subjects, including theism, cosmology, and epistemology. When I learned that he had such support in my department, I mentioned the possibility of inviting him to speak, and there was unanimous enthusiasm for the idea. My professors offered to arrange a small conference for him to address at least the faculty of divinity. Of course, these are Islamic divinity uh, you know, uh, leaders. And they have now also said that they would like to arrange separate speaking engagements at the Middle East Technical University, where his work in cosmology would be of particular interest, and at Marmara University in Istanbul. I have written to Dr. Cray to invite him, and he was excited about the opportunity and has accepted the invitation. We have decided 10 days from April 17th, that would give him four days, blah, blah, blah. At Ankara University, Dr. Craig will give a public talk about Big Bang cosmology. And then at a closed meeting with a select group of philosophy professors, he will speak on the rationality of the incarnation. While he's at Ankara, he will also teach for a few days at Philippus, the ministry training will go, goes on like that. Then he says, I wrote him later, how did it go? He said, it went very well, and we recorded it. Now here you have... Islamic professors who want this man to come and talk to him about the incarnation of Christ. <laughs> you go, sorry? But this is the kind of thing the Lord is doing at every level, whether it's breaking out in tremendous uh, physical healings or whether it's at this level, these are things that only, uh, it's only because of the Holy Spirit at work. Where would we be without the Holy Spirit? And the fact is what is... Uh, so interesting, at every level you see the recovery of the doctrine and the practice of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, if we look back over evangelical history in 300 years, I would say one of the central things that God is doing is the recovery of the doctrine and the practice of the Holy Spirit. There was a book by Karl Rahner who is uh, uh, in the 1970s called The Trinity. And he's saying, we've lost the Trinity. In 1970, this is a Catholic 
that some of the new, and then a friend of mine, Damon So, uh, 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 he just finished his second doctoral uh, uh, in, uh, program in uh, England. He's written a book on the Trinity in, in, in Jesus' relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit. And in his introduction, he goes and he cites different uh, theologians and says, We've lost, what's happened to the Holy Spirit? What's happened to the Trinity? We, we, we have a, 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 a lack of, we're imbalanced in our Christianity because we're imbalanced in our theology. We're so Jesus-focused and the Father, but who is the Holy Spirit? There's a, there's a confusion about that. So on one hand, you see in the theolo- theological circles, and then you see somebody, you're talking about the African church. You see somebody like Jonathan Bonk, who's a, an academic in, in the United States, saying uh, the difference between the African church and the Western church is that the Western church is focused on uh, individual salvation and the nature of Christ. Whereas the African church is, is focused on the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that there's not a, a, a grasp of Jesus, but we're, we're talking about emphasis, uh, a focus on the Holy Spirit and the communal nature. Uh, so here you have the theologians say, hey, we've lost the Holy Spirit. Here you have uh, this tremendous growth in, in the African church, and, and what is the focus on the Holy Spirit? But if you look back at evangelicalism, where we have this somewhat ridiculous tension between the Bible and the Holy Spirit, if you really look at evangelicalism and you say, what was happening in evangelicalism? What was happening, as many people say, the evangelicals grew out of the revivals that came out of the Reformation. So you have the Reformation, salvation by faith. Amen. Good, good solid stuff. But what happened in the evangelical revivals was what? You know, you look at the, the story of Wesley. You look at the story of Whitfield. What were they saying? They're struggling with, am I saved? It wasn't just the doctrinal question, is how does that doctrinal question apply into my life? It says what we say, typical kind of evangelical expression, let the truth drop 18 inches from your head to your heart. If you look at what David Bebbington says, and he says, which is a well-regarded kind of historian of religion and evangelicalism, he says there's four marks of the evangelicals. We're biblical, we're conversionist, we're activists and we're cross-centered. A real focus on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. A real focus on the Bible. A real focus on we've got to get out and spread the message, the activism. But a real focus on conversion. You must be born again. That's what the revivals were about. You must be born again. It was like when I was in, uh, at a, a Catholic evangelical conference in the Czech Republic. And I, I was trying to describe to these uh, Catholic uh, Catholics who are the evangelicals, you know, because especially in Eastern Europe, it's a very small minority, so it's not like in some other countries. And I was saying Bebbington's four marks, and I go, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, and then all of a sudden I thought the picture, I said, I know. I said, you know those people that come on the street corners, and they say, the Bible says you must be born again. And go, oh, yeah, yeah, we know those guys, we know them. Well, there it is, activists, biblically oriented, the cross of Christ, and conversion. But if you look at what is conversion, conversion is just the man's side. I have to make a decision for Christ. But the God side is what? It's the regenerative activity of the Holy Spirit. So at the very outset, the very outset of evangelicalism, it was a focus on appropriating the Holy Spirit's regenerative work. The Holy Spirit was always central 
to evangelicalism. It was never just the Bible. It was also that the fact that the Holy Spirit had to apply it to our lives. Now I think what you see in these last hundred years, especially with the Azusa Street Revival, 1906, you have this despised small group uh, who begin to... Uh, people said it's, it's typical. What happened in, in Azusa Street is what happens in every revolution where they say it's impossible and irresponsible before it happens. And after it's happened, the academics will say it was inevitable. <laughs> that happens in every revolution. And it's the same when you look at uh, what, how people now look at uh, the Holy Spirit work in the 20th century. Somebody like uh, who used to be a real uh, doubter uh, all this even uh, Pentecostal craziness, Harvey Cox at, at uh, Harvard Divinity. And I was completely surprised and blown away uh, when I saw him in the year 2006, which is the 100-year celebration of the Pentecostal movement after Azusa Street in 1906. There's Harvey Cox on NBC. There's an NBC one-hour special on Pentecostalism. And one of the people they, are, they, they interviewed was Harvey Cox. And I was just blown away at how, how positive he was about Pentecostalism. He said, oh, we're seeing more and more um, uh, uh, in these last 15 years. He said, we're seeing more and more Pentecostals at Harvard. He said, it's quite a, it's quite a surprise. He said, my only advice to them, and I thought, what's he going to say? He, my only advice is that they don't lose their fire Harvey Cox, this is the guy who wrote The Secular City in 1965, which said religion will get more and more secular. Not more and more spiritual, but the Holy Spirit had different plans. And here now he's saying, and why is he saying that? Because he says it's the Pentecostals who are working with the immigrants in the inner cities. And it's the Pentecostals who are working with the immigrants in the inner cities that are changing the inner cities, giving people hope and saying, you can do it. It's not just handouts from above, but, the, but God by His Holy Spirit can change you and you can change the inner city. And that's what impresses Harvey Cox. And that's the Holy Spirit. There's, God is doing something new. There's a recovery of the Holy Spirit. So when I see here, and I hear you talking about, you know, we need to get on with God, discover what He's doing, learn the ways of God and the Holy Spirit, it seems to me, as you look around the world, that is what, one of the, the key things that God is doing. It's not, it's not something separate from the Bible. It's like one of the great early Pentecostals, David Duplessis, you know, we don't have time to go into all that, that he's contributed in the 20th century. But one of the things that he said when one of Bultmann's, uh, Bultmann was a, uh, quite a radical theologian who introduced uh, the infamous phrase, demythologize. We need to demythologize the Bible. See all the myths that are in it, recognize them and say, these are just good myths. And so David Duplessis says, yeah, uh, when one of Bultmann's d d disciples uh, said to David Duplessis, who was uh, a leading Pentecostal figure, and he said, so how, how do you relate to the Bible? He said, oh, I think we should demythologize it. Oh, they, they were quite surprised. He said, oh, really? He said, yes. He said, what we Pentecostals do is we take all the things in the Bible that you say are myths, make them happen, and prove that they weren't myths. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit. And God is at work. And so again, when I see what, what, what I hear these testimonies, I'm encouraged. I'm reminded, stimulated that in my own life that we have the Father, we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, but we also have the Holy, uh, with Jesus, but we also have that relationship with the Holy Spirit, which God is insisting 
This was his an- that we follow. This was his answer to Mary. How will this happen? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There is no Christianity without Holy Spirit. Even as there is no real Christianity without the Word of God coming to us individually and saying to us, You. I have a relationship with you. I have a purpose for you. I have an aim and a concern and a look upon, yes, the whole world, but you. And that's what makes our this so, uh, so such a treasure in our life, that God speaks to us and loves us as individuals. Amen.